Okay, so if you have a Bible, turn to Daniel chapter 10 this morning. I will get set up as well. So the Lord says in Isaiah 55, he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Have you ever struggled with the way God works? With the way he's allowed history, or maybe your story in particular, to unfold? There are days, I don't know if you feel like this ever, where I feel like I have some notes for the Lord. In moments of arrogance and exasperation, I want to sit down with God and say, hey, can we debrief this last season, please? Let's talk about what went well and what didn't go so well. Uh, maybe let's do a, a little evaluation, God, of your strategy and your tactics. I got some feedback for next time. Maybe some ways that we can get to the same end goals, but more effectively or, or efficiently or less painfully ever feel like that I got big picture thoughts sometimes like God you rose from the dead you conquered death why didn't you stick around and finish the job why did you leave us to do it and to mess things up you're the son of God you're God in the flesh you're Jewish Superman you're Mr. Incredible you could have just stuck around for three years you'd have been done now here we are 2,000 years later still struggling to share who you are. Maybe it's more in our own personal lives. God, I get it that lessons are important. I get it. My identity is in my belovedness. My, my worth is not in my performance or what I accomplish. And yes, you are my provision. Yes, you are my security. But did I really need Eight months of unemployment and those just demoralizing job searching process to learn that lesson. Couldn't you just let the, the learning period have been whoop, a little bit more constrained? Or maybe you're in a spot where you're saying, Did I really need to experience life altering tragedy? Did I really have to walk through that particular crucible? Couldn't I have I just read a book instead of learning these things firsthand? As we get to the end of Daniel's story, he too is struggling with God's plan. Which makes things sense. Think of his personal story of suffering and endurance as a eunuch and a slave and a refugee in a foreign land. Think of the visions he's seen. Yes, there's a coming kingdom of God and it will last forever. Yes, God is throwing a great jubilee and his Messiah is coming, but they will all come after the end of these long, hard roads that promise difficulty and hardship along the way. And, and Daniel's processing all of this at the end of his life, and he's doing so as we pick up the narrative in Daniel chapter 10. And here's what we read. 
In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar. Belshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. Daniel has heard God's word. He's understood God's word. God's word is true. And he's not sure he likes it. He calls it a great conflict. And I'm not sure if he means he's greatly conflicted about how God is going about his business or if it's the content of God's promised future that just strikes him as a mess of of suffering and toil and trouble. And indeed, that phrase, great conflict, carries with it in the Hebrew the sense of hard service. Daniel's witnessing some hard service in his own day. As at long last, the exiles have been allowed to return to the land of their inheritance. It's been over a year since the Persian emperor Cyrus issued his edict that let 50,000 Jews go back home to Judah and start rebuilding God's temple in Jerusalem. And if you want to read about those euphoric early days back in the land, it's Ezra chapters 1 through 3. And remember what we learned last week. This exodus from Babylon, this is God's people's first taste of Jubilee. It is the opening gambit in God's grand plan of redemption. It's it's the start of that great drama of rescue and renewal that will climax in the coming of the Messiah, the, the establishment of God's new covenant of grace, the forgiveness of sins, the righting of wrongs, and the remaking of the world. But before we get there, we learned last week, the Lord said that Jerusalem will be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And it's been only a year for the exiles back in the land, but trouble has already begun to rear its ugly head. And though Daniel was kind of too old and too fragile to make the long trek home, he's been receiving reports about how the Jews are faring. And he hears of them contending with hostile neighbors, of of struggling to survive, of of facing setbacks. They were able to rebuild the altar. The, The sacrifices, biblical worship was restored. But only a year into it, they've had to halt all reconstruction of the temple, and it will prove to be a 15-year hiatus. This has not been the fairy tale return that Daniel was hoping for. It's been great conflict, and it has sent Daniel into this 
downward spiral of depression and grief. And he's, he's kicking himself. Because you'd think that after a lifetime in exile, he would have learned this simple truth that faithfulness may be more difficult than we initially suppose. And he's crying out to God, why does the path you chart have to be so hard? Why does affliction have to seem like it's our identifying mark as your people? He's struggling with God's plan. James, who's the brother of Jesus, he wrote this to the church in the New Testament. He said, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This statement is so counterintuitive to my natural way of thinking. Why would I celebrate the appearance of obstacles in my journey? Why would I embrace the onset of, of hardship and struggle? Well, in my family, our family devotions about a month ago, we were going through this passage in James, and I was trying to figure out how to explain this to my kids, and it triggered a memory from my childhood. So growing up, my grandparents lived in Tucson, Arizona, so I spent many a summer in the American Southwest, and, and one summer, we made the trek out to Oracle, Arizona, to see what was called the Biosphere 2. Does anyone remember this? Back in the late 80s, early 90s, there were like these Elon Musk types who built these giant closed terrariums in the desert because they wanted to investigate what it would be like to establish a human colony in space. And apparently, the inhospitable deserts of, the, of southern Arizona are the closest we could find to the surface of Mars. So it became this ideal site for this experiment. And in reality, Biosphere was about 50% science experiment and 50% the birth of reality TV because... They also <laughs> locked in to this dome for years at a time, a small team of astronaut types, and you got to watch them slowly go mad. So the 90s were great, man. If you missed it, they were fun. Yet one thing I remember from our visit to Biosphere was the major insight that the scientists there had discovered about trees, and this is actually really fascinating. And I'm, this is especially for Greg, our arborist, our treeologist in the congregation, one of our elders, our, our tree nerd. But they're in the biosphere, the, like overprotective parents, the creators had tried to account for every variable inside the dome. They had calibrated the environment with just careful precision because they wanted to set it at ideal conditions under which life might thrive. 
But a few years in, they discovered that the trees in the desert outside of the dome were faring far better than the pampered trees in the tropical greenhouse were. And the trees inside, they were struggling to mature. Their, their wood wouldn't harden, and their roots wouldn't grow deep, and they kept sprouting up and then collapsing under their own weight. Well, what was missing? Stress, actually. There's no wind in that dome. So the, the trees lacked any constant opposition to strain against. And one kind of scientific website summed up their findings like this. Wind plays a major role in a tree's life. The presence of wind makes a tree stronger. It is thus able to mature and not fall down due to its own weight. Wind not only forces the roots to anchor the organism more firmly into the earth, but also the structure of the wood itself starts to adapt. You can kind of see this in this cutout of this tree. When plants and trees grow in the wild, the wind constantly keeps them moving. This causes a stress in the wooden load-bearing structure of the tree. So to compensate, the tree manages to grow something called reaction wood, that darker part, or stress wood. This stress wood is usually of a different structure than the wood around it, and it's able to position the tree where it'll get the best light or access to just optimum resources. So this is why trees are able to contort towards best light and still survive loads in even awkward shapes. A contorted building like that would easily fall. The tree is able to grow in a more solid manner thanks to the reaction wood. Do you get that? If you don't, ask Greg. He'll explain everything. But the stress actually causes the tree to compensate, to grow stronger, to get sturdy, to dig deep. And that's James's insight too, isn't it? Consider it to your benefit when you experience struggle and strain, not because it's fun, not because it feels good at the time, but because such adversity is developing steadfastness in your internal structure. It's solidifying your character. It's hardening your resolve. It is maturing you into the person, the the organism that you were designed to be. It's preparing you to ascend towards the light. It's spurring you towards the resources that will allow you to truly flourish so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect doesn't mean here morally pristine. It means achieving your intended end. It means stepping fully into the wholeness for which you were created. So Daniel in our passage is like, find God. I get it. 
We need wind to grow strong, to fully realize who and what you've called us to be. But come on, can you dial up like a, a brisk autumn breeze? Some good kite flying weather. I don't think I can handle another tornado, another season of hurricanes. And it seems almost in protest that Daniel goes on a little hunger strike. He stops bathing. He, he raises a stink as he comes to the Lord in prayer. He's begging to understand and for God to shield his people from pain. And again, God draws near. He sends a messenger, we'll shortly see, to give his beloved one insights. But it turns out that this divine revelation is actually a rough experience for Daniel. And here's what we read. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I'm celebrating the fact that it's not the Euphrates. Daniel didn't get to go home, but he finally got to leave the city of Babylon. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Upaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words were like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves." So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. And then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground." So Daniel receives this heavenly visitor, and it leaves him, as one commentator colorfully puts it, physically and psychologically flattened. Apparently, the truth is more devastating than we suppose. Receiving truth takes a frightful toll on us humans. And in this passage, Daniel is playing host to one of God's angelic warriors. This is very likely a a cherubim, one of those angelic figures that we see kind of pulling God's chariot throne in Ezekiel chapter 1. This is a figure who stepped out of kind of the fiery holiness of God's presence, and he, he carries with them the afterglow of that encounter. You get a sense of the richness and the radiance and the purity and the power of the God that he serves. And his arrival seems to pack a punch and just splendor and dread overwhelm Daniel. Whoever this is, the reverb is turned all the way up. And we keep reading. And behold, verse 10, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, 
man greatly loved. Understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up, trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and I came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. Let's try to keep our bearings here. Do you remember why Daniel started praying in the first place? He wanted to further understand the future that was awaiting his people, and he was disturbed by reports of just the unrelenting, ongoing opposition that the Jews were experiencing back in the land. And Daniel's demanding to know why this road is so hard and, and what's taking so long with God's definitive rescue. And our blazing cherubim warrior is here to introduce some, some data to the conversation. And he says, in essence, you realize we're not marching through neutral territory here, Daniel. Right? You realize that, that God's great plan of rescue has the full weight of hell marshaled in opposition to it. This is what he means when he talks about the prince of the kingdom of Persia. If you think back to our study of Daniel chapter 7, that was the vision of the four beasts. Those were those violent pagan empires that would rise up to resist God's rule and to persecute his people. And we discovered in that study this pattern that was at work in history, that humans and their kingdoms become beasts when they don't acknowledge God and his authority. And why was that? Well, one, it's because our pride, our selfishness, our greed corrupts everything we put our hand to. But there's a second reason as well. Remember what the Apostle Paul told the Ephesian believers, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. He's saying behind these earthly empires, Unseen spiritual powers are at work that are advancing their own dark schemes of harm and havoc and destruction. So the cherub is saying what's unfolding is not merely historical social struggle, but it's also this campaign of conquest in heavenly places. And he's saying, I know it's hard to comprehend because the battle's spiritual, but human brokenness and stubbornness are not the only obstacles that God is contending with on this road to renewal. The powers of darkness, Satan and his henchmen, like this malevolent demon called the 
prince of Persia that seems to hold sway in that land. These fiends are putting up fierce resistance. Yet our angelic warrior is communicating to Daniel that in this great conflict, prayer is more crucial than we suppose. If you read carefully and you look at the timing of Daniel's prayer and what's going on, you'll notice that Daniel's prayer has real impact on what he cannot see. And again, I'm going to quote from one of my favorites, a Dutch scholar named Herman Veldkamp. And he contends this. He says, Daniel's prayers succeeded in drawing angels from heaven to earth. These angels formed an invincible heavenly guard around the people of the Lord, with the result that the plans of the enemy failed. In the mighty battle then being fought between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, Daniel succeeded in mobilizing the angels as a spiritual air force against the satanic powers in the air. Honestly, I don't know how to process all of that information. But it does explain something. Daniel was ecstatic that Cyrus had let the Jews go back to the land. And then he's depressed that the Persians didn't offer them more support when they started to face opposition. And he can tell that God is using the emperor as his instrument But he detects that another power is at work behind the scenes in Persia seeking to thwart God's plans. A spiritual blockade had been erected. But some way and somehow Daniel's faithful persistence in prayer had yielded real practical results. It says that his prayer brought Michael the angelic guardian of the people of God, into the fray. He kind of tags in, and together he and Mr. Cherub that we've met before kind of take down this prince of Persia. I get it, but I don't really get it. And Daniel couldn't really process this extra layer of information either. And this is what he says. Verse 15, when he had spoken to me, according to these words, I turned my face towards the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of men touched my lips. And then I opened my mouth and spoke, and I stood, said to him who stood before me, Oh, my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Daniels realizes that this angel's here to give him an answer to his prayers. He, he's starting to comprehend that his prayers have this spiritual dimension that he never realized and. They have real effect in heavenly places. And he's trying to absorb all of this. He's trying to get ready to receive whatever the angel has to say. And he says, basically, I can't handle another information dump. 
Look at Daniel. He's helpless. He's fainting. He's shaking. He's speechless. He's breathless. He can't receive God's word and preserve it for future generations when he's a puddle on the floor. And God knows that he's overwhelmed, so he strengthens him. He shows him special care and attention. He says, I know this is a heavily, heavy assignment. So God, in his grace, breathes life into Daniel. He girds him up. He restores his soul. He makes it so Daniel can stand on his own two feet and have his wits about him. And then the passage ends like this. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And then Mr. Cherub speaks. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. So we're going to stop there. And as we plow through these final chapters in Daniel, I confess that I'm going to leave a lot of meat on the bone. There's going to be a lot left over for you to chew on with spiritual brothers and sisters. So I encourage you to, to get together, wrestle through some of your questions on these things. Call me up. We can grab tea. I would love to wade deep into the nitty gritty aspects of these stories. But we're going to save the actual content of Daniel's vision for next Sunday. But I'll give you a quick preview. It turns out history is more complicated than we suppose. So that's all for now. But before we close the book this week, I want us to wrestle with why God works in the way that he does. Why does everything seem so slow, so complex, so difficult? What explanation does this passage give us? What words of insight or encouragement or challenge does this passage offer as we, like Daniel, struggle with God's plan? And as I sat with this this week, the light bulb didn't come on until I stopped wrestling with the why and started the relationship between God and his people. As I look at this passage, these are the four conclusions I draw. And as God speaks to us, we are strengthened. We might not understand why the road is so hard, but in difficult days, in the valley of the shadow of death, God draws near. The second thing I can conclude from this passage is that this planet and human history are not uncontested. 
Peter told us that our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The opposition is real, but Jesus is stronger. I love in the Gospel of Mark when Jesus essentially steps onto the scene and says, I'm going to bind that strong man, the devil, and I'm going to plunder his house and rescue you back for God. The planet and human history are not are contested, but Jesus is stronger. The third thing that we can conclude from this passage is that God chooses to involve us in his work. We are partners in the family business. We are apprentices of our Heavenly Father. And while God can act on His own, He often chooses to invite us to partner with Him, to get in the trenches with Him. And I keep thinking of the encouragement Brianna gives me over and over with my son Elijah. She's like, teach him. Invite him to do it with you. Yes, the dishes will take far longer. Yes, water and soap will get everywhere. But he needs to grow into the little man that God has created him to be. And like a patient father, Jesus too is involving us in the work. And he's letting us utilize his strength and wisdom to do it. But the final insight that was unlocked for me was this. Our journey with God forms us into the people he intends for us to be. The tree cannot be the tree it was created to be without the wind that resists it. And our journey with God, with its ups and downs, with its joys and hardships, this is how God shapes us into the image of his son. And this came home for me as I read a passage in what is my favorite book on family discipleship. Beth and I have been reading this this year together. It's a little book from the 80s called How to Disciple Your Children by a man named Walter Henriksen. And in it, he wrote something that I think really captures the heart of our Heavenly Father. And I just want you to hear this and tell me if this rings true. Walter writes, We must be careful not to spoil our children. If I shower upon my child his every desire, he will eventually become indifferent to my generosity. In his youth, he will be unable to understand what is transpiring. Properly discipled, he will grow up able to handle extreme generosity. Improperly trained, He will have to learn his lesson the way Israel did in the wilderness. If they become spoiled and indifferent to the blessings of God, if they allow that which was intended for good to dull their senses and to blur their vision, 
then God will have to take them through the fire. Either our kids will learn to build spiritual fiber into their lives through self-discipline, or God will do it for them. The number of things we give them will not make the difference. The perspective of life that we impart will. I want to be the spoiled brat kid of God that just gets it all handed to me on a plate and says, thanks God, and I can just go on with my wary way. But he is a loving father who says, I am rescued you. I am washing you clean, but I'm also going to make you new. I'm going to chip away and chisel away all the sin and brokenness and gunk that's accumulated, and I'm going to reveal the man of God, the reflection of Jesus that you were created to be. And it's going to take a journey. Because let's be honest, you don't care enough to do it yourself. You're content in your greed and your selfishness and your brokenness. But I have committed not only to wash you clean, but to make you new. So I'm going to walk this hard road with you. I'm going to train you. I'm going to equip you. I'm going to be there every step of the way. But I am going to make you new. My kid's not going to be the droopy tree that falls over. You're going to be solid and steadfast and thriving and fruitful because that's who I've created you to be. And my ways are not your ways. To get there, the road is hard. Look at what it cost my son to become fully who I called him to be. It took a cross and a tomb. But I will walk with you every step of the way. Yes, you will face demonic resistance, but I am stronger. I am with you. My strength is available to you. My grace is sufficient for you. And I will shape you into who you truly were meant to be. A sinner saved by grace. A beloved child of the king. Someone who flourishes. And no matter what life throws at them, in steadfastness glorifies the God who saves them. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear God, you are a good father. And we surrender to the season that we're in, to the path you invite us to walk. to the journey you have us on. We don't just throw up our hands, God, because for some reason you've invited us to partner, that our prayers have real effects, that we get to, to join with you 
and seeing real rescue, real healing, real peace, real comfort happen in this life. But God, we're on the journey with you. And we know it leads to the cross and through the tomb into newness and victory and life. And while it is a hard road, give us the courage to say yes. And say yes with the conviction of Moses who says, I am not leaving from this place if you do not go with me. But if you go with me, I know I will find rest. Train us as your apprentices. Mature us as your kids. And give us the endurance and steadfastness we need for the real trials and struggles of this life. And we trust you to break the power of evil, sin, and death once and for all and make all things new. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.